This is David Tweezer, Jewish Journal Studios. Today I'm honored to have with us Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. He's well known in Los Angeles from his many years as the director of education at the former Brandeis Bardeen Institute in Simi Valley, where he teamed up with his lifelong friend Dennis Prager in the 70s and 80s. Perhaps he's made his most indelible mark on the American Jewish community as an author. He's written 16 books on Judaism, and one of the most popular he co-authored with Dennis Prager, Nine Questions People Ask About Judaism. Rabbi Telushkin's book, Jewish Literacy, The Most Important Things to Know About the Jewish Religion, Its People, and Its History, is one of the best-selling books on Judaism in the past two decades. He serves as a rabbi for the Los Angeles-based Synagogue for the Performing Arts, founded in 1972. He's also an associate of the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, and he's been on the Newsweek list of the 50 most influential rabbis in America since 1997. Welcome, Joseph. David, it is fun to be anything with, at anything that you're doing, so I'm very happy. And as we were speaking a few minutes earlier, your passion for the Jewish Journal and what journalism can do is contagious. And I was very excited when you heard to, when you was describing to me all the stuff that you're doing now. Well, I remember we had coffee on the Upper East Side several years ago, and we got quite deep at some point. And then you said, "What really motivates you?" And I think the word I came up with was curiosity. And we we spent half an hour talking about curiosity. Yeah. Because we there are so many values that we elevate. Uh, compassion, generosity, integrity, honesty, that have sort of, I call them the glamorous attributes, but somehow curiosity is never elevated as one of the great attributes. And for me, it's been one of the most animating uh, motivations. Well, curiosity is also what saves a person from being endlessly repetitive because you might end up sticking with the same themes, but, but curiosity will get you to have new ways to present the themes. So like, you know, somebody who's been a lifelong writer on Judaism and Jewish, on Jewish themes, there are basic truths that I might keep repeating, but you come up, you learn how to apply them in a broader way. You know, in other words, all of life, when Hillel said, the essence of Judaism is what's hateful unto you to unto, unto your neighbor, it's not like just knowing that answer answers all of your questions. In any given situation, you have to figure out what's the equitable thing to do. So you still have to use the, the full resources. I call it the full resources of your moral imagination. When we think of the 20th century, we think of extraordinary advances that were made in science, in uh, medicine, in technology. In the final analysis, all of those advances came about because an individual or a group of people use the full resources of their intellectual imagination to solve problems that had previously been thought to be insoluble. The 20th and now 21st century has been more of a mixed bag on moral issues. In some ways, there's been extraordinary improvement. Uh, the status of women, the status of minorities, you know, of, of, of blacks, the treatment of people who are mentally challenged. But on the other hand, it was also the century of the greatest mass murders in history. The, obviously, the Holocaust, obviously, the communist tyrannies, Rwanda, terrible, terrible things happened. I would argue because people don't always use the full resources of their intellectual imagination to solve problems. And, uh, and curiosity is part of what enables us to expand 
how we use our minds. If we look at curiosity in the Jewish community, we have to be honest and say that there's a countervailing force, and that force is what I call comfort. Mm. So if I'm really comfortable in my little bubble in my Jewish neighborhood because I'm, sur I'm always with people who agree with me ideologically, who vote for the same person, and we have the same melodies every week, and I'm really comfortable in that environment, uh, what role can curiosity play? In, in a certain sense, curiosity can be threatening because if I'm curious about my friend who voted for Obama, for example, and I'm curious about why he voted, or I'm curious about a different type of synagogue in my neighborhood, and I'm curious about the, the, the Carliner style of davening, and I'm curious about the, the Shlomo Kalbach style of davening, and I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, and I'm curious about the Sephardic synagogue down the street, Sometimes uh, what I've seen is that people can feel threatened by that kind of curiosity because they're happy with what they've got. And in a certain sense, when you look at the, the polarity and the division in the Jewish world, so much of it comes from people who stay comfortably in their bubbles. I think you're right. It's a, you're, not only are you right, you're making a really important point. Very often, every four years during a presidential campaign, I'll ask audiences can you think of a single reason someone's voting for the candidate you oppose that doesn't reflect badly either on their intelligence or on, or on their character? It doesn't reflect badly on their head or on their heart. And I really find liberals who can think of a single reason someone might be voting for the other candidate, and I really find conservatives who can think of a single reason. That raises a very bad, big problem, and the problem it raises is if you know that the people you oppose, if you don't just assume that they're stupid people, but you know them to be intelligent, and they're making a choice that you, to you is so self-evident and it's wrong, there's going to be a tendency then to start demonizing them, to think there really is something wrong with their heart, or to attribute bad motives to them and other things. And you're right. And the more we isolate ourselves the more likely we are only to hear people who are reinforcing the views we already hold. I've been very impressed with what you've been doing at the Jewish Journal, which is really trying to present a buffet of viewpoints. Because if people are only going to read things that are going to reinforce what they already believe, so first of all, curiosity gets shut down. And secondly, whatever they believe is just reinforced to an extent that they're going to end up demonizing the people who disagree with them. And that's what's desperately needed. I had told you earlier, I'm working on a revision of my book, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. And in the first iteration of the book, when it came out in the mid-90s, first of all, one of the things I said at the time was, I'm writing the book now because there's a crisis of civility, and I can't imagine it could get any worse. Well, I, I know that I am not a prophet. It can get worse. But what I also want to subtitle this book is Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, the way how, how we use words can shape our destiny because it really will define how we act in the world, how we react in the world, who we can appeal to. So what I was impressed with what you're doing with Jewish Journal is you're trying to present a large variety of views so that people can understand how people can be smart people and decent people and understand the world differently than them. And isn't that the Jewish story for thousands of years, that Judaism in many ways has been a conversation? And it seems to me in the recent past, 
we sort of, you know, blocked that conversation and yeah. gone into our our little silos. I, I I wanted to make the point when I when you were talking. My good friend Yossi Klein Alivi has a theory about why Jews go at each other's throat so much. Yeah, and he thinks we uh we have the revelatory complex where we feel that because we were at Sinai 3,300 years ago and got the great revelation from Moses with the tablets that somehow every opinion we have has the the, the, the status of a revelation. The Jews mm. talk like we're revealing some big truth and no other truth. There's no room for any other truth. So he thinks that some of it is that. And then the other thing is uh, everything seems to be life or death with us. And when things are life or death, then... How dare you have this other opinion? We've, we we've seem to have jumped from disagreement to rejection. So how dare you yes, think this when way? When people think the stakes are too high on every issue, it becomes impossible to be tolerant because the opposite side could be so detrimental. Now, in, in thinking of what you just said, Yossi Klein-Halevi said, but then, of course, there's the alternate suggestion that the Torah has 70 ways it can be interpreted what does that mean if not that obviously there isn't only one way to the truth? And it's very interesting. The two most famous, the two most famous conflicting views in the Talmud are those of the house of Shammai and those of the house of Hillel. And they had a whole bunch of disagreements even on legal issues. And the rabbis claim in a story that one is free to interpret metaphorically that a voice came out from heaven, what they call in Hebrew, batkol, and said, Elu ve'elu, both these words of Hillel and these words of Shammai are the words of the living God, but the ruling goes according to Hillel. And the question then is raised, if both of them are the words of the living God, why do we rule according to Hillel? And the Talmud elaborates and says, because Hillel studied always the teachings of Shammai and even studied them first. And so one people often interpret that as just being, okay, it shows the ethics of tolerance. You study the other view, it's the ethics. I think it goes deeper than that. I think the people who study the other point of view become intellectually deeper. They know what it is that they're rejecting. They're not just rejecting a paper man. You see, very often when people speak in a very dismissive way of people who disagree with them religiously or politically, they are often creating a straw man. It's not the actual person. I remember years ago in a different context, uh, a man who you know well and who was my uh, favorite teacher when I was at Yeshiva University, Yitz Greenberg, used to say, I don't care what denomination in Judaism you belong to as long as you're ashamed of it. Yeah, and Yitz, of course, was picking up on the fact no one denomination can claim that its path alone would bring, that the only reason the Mashiach hasn't come, the Messiah hasn't come, is because of the other groups. We all have our own deficiencies, and yet if all we're looking for is the deficiency in the other group, and if all we're doing is comparing the weakness of the other groups with the strength of our group, obviously we're always going to come out on top. And we have to be also willing to be a little more uh, self-critical in that respect. In that regard, my friend Dennis Prager used to say a very important day in the life of a, a religious person is when he meets a person of either a different denomination within his own religion or of a different religion who is both intelligent and smart. Because we have a tendency, again, to be dismissive of others uh, as either being stupid or being uh, heartless. You know, Joseph, I get submissions of op-eds from scholars 
and and they read like polemics with really strong point of views. And I spoke to one of them once, and I said, "Man, you take no prisoners." He <laughs> says, "That's exactly my goal. I want to. I, you know, I don't want to take any prisoners. I want to make the strongest possible case." And it struck me that there's something a little bit not Jewish about that, because isn't the Jewish way to sort of honor complexity? And it, it also struck me that um, printing and publishing those kind of uh, editorials just sort of reinforces like polarities, that there might be a the more interesting voice, the voice that I find more interesting for me is the, the voice that has the inner struggle, where there's you know, both ideologies are inside the same author, and they're struggling. And I find that, that that's a voice that, I, I, that appeals to me. I'm not remembering the quote exactly, but there's a wonderful line by the poet Yeats, something to the effect, out of, out of arguments we have with others come quarrels. Out of arguments we have with ourselves come poetry. Hmm. You know, and you want to uh, do it. I was influenced in this regard by my friend... Uh, with whom I have areas of political disagreement, my friend Erwin Kula, who heads Klal. But Erwin has also, also I have political agreements. Erwin made a very important comment to me. He said, when he sees a position that he doesn't like or that he doesn't agree with, I mean, unless we're talking about far out, you know, very extremist, you know, beyond the pale. But he said what he tries to do, is he, he looks at the position and see, is there any partial truth in it? Am I actually saying that on this issue, as apparently the fellow you were talking about who, who doesn't want to take prisoners, basically what he was saying was he's going to write what he's going to write because on this issue he has 100% of the truth and the other side has 0% of the truth. And obviously when you think like that, it tends to encourage an intolerant attitude. Look, there are issues on which I would be like that. I'm not going to look for partial truths if somebody accuses Israel of genocide, you know, or says or says the Jews don't have a right to a state. Uh, then, you know, there is no partial truth on the other side. It's an out and out evil, uh, evil words, and the, the people who are saying it just might either be being misled or they are actually evil. But on the most, but I don't want to be like that on most issues. On most issues, I come out on one side. But it's what you're saying. There could be an argument between us. And if there's an argument between us, inside us, it doesn't mean you're 50-50, but 70-30. You might be 70-30, but there is something in the other side that is somewhat appealing to you. And Irwin said it's the search for partial truths in the other position that can keep us from becoming hateful and from defining those uh, you know, in terrible terms. Robert Dole, who was the Republican presidential candidate in 96, and who himself was an ardent arguer for his positions, nonetheless said when he saw manifestations of what he thought was a real intolerance emerging, he said, remember, the Democrats are our opponents. They're not our enemies. And that's, you know, becomes important. It, it works in both directions. The Republicans are our opponents from the Democratic side, not our enemies. And when we start losing that, then we start losing the intellectual basis for civility. The intellectual basis for civility is that there are partial truths on the other side, and if we speak in a civil way, we can maintain relationships. Once that starts to break down, I don't feel the need to have a civil relationship with the people who are trying to organize BDS against Israel. I don't feel I have to have a civil relationship with 
somebody who charges Israel with genocide because they've defined themselves as out beyond the bounds of fairness and of civility. But otherwise, if we start applying that standard to too many issues, we're going to wreak havoc. We're going to make enemies out of people with whom we can respectfully quarrel Within and the, from whom we can learn. Right. Within the Jewish community, yes. there is an enormous amount that unites us. Uh, more than divides us. And if you just put aside the fringes of the BDS and the anti, and the antis, uh, I call them, there's, we're tearing each other apart within this right. group of people who have so much in common. I had a interesting five years mm-hmm. where every day I came to work and yeah. my partner, Rob Eshman, was way to the left of me. Right. We loved each other. Mm-hmm. And we had hundreds of debates and sometimes arguments whether it was politically, whether it was about Israel. And after five years, I said to him, I said, you know, Rob, being with you for five years really helped me learn the art of listening. Mm-hmm. And this is what, I, what happened to both of us. Because, I, first of all, I trusted him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was exactly in that category of Jew that you talk about. This is not a BDS or anti or... No, this right. is within us, yes. within the Jewish community, within the mainstream. But he had views to the left. On the Iran deal, he supported the deal, and I hated the deal. Right. But I was, because I had such respect for him and because I learned the art of listening, and he would make some really good points, and I listened, and vice versa. And at the end of the day, if we don't learn the art of listening, we're just going to keep digging in and wallowing in the disease of self-righteousness. Or as you put it, you learned that there are positions he took that you could learn from. And the art of listening also leads to refining the way we make our own case. Because we're going to make our own case in a certain way if we're only speaking to people who already basically agree with us. You know, then you can give all the polemical lines and, you know, and all the phrases But if you really do want to lean over and impact the other side, number one, you have to show them a modicum of respect because otherwise you'll just make them, uh, you know, act badly. And I remember years ago I was reading of an instance where uh, Rush Limbaugh, who, you know, can be a polarizing sort of person, defined radical feminists with a term. He, He was not the one who came up with the term, but he popularized it. He called them feminazis. And he applied it to uh, Bella Abzug, to Gloria Steinem. And, you know, then I see Gloria Steinem resi- uh, responds ways in which uh, he was saying things that Hitler would have said. You know, so I thought, you know, th- it becomes ridiculous. You st- when one side starts using very insulting terms, so the other side's going to then start using very insulting terms. And again, all you have is the polarization. So we're in a bad spot because if we're in a situation in the United States, because we see how close elections tend to be. The elections, even you know, even when you hear that there's a landslide election, so it means one party got 10% more than the other party, but it really means that when you're talking in a country of 300 million people, there are tremendous numbers on each side. And if we get to a position where liberals have such a demonic view of conservatives and conservatives have a demonic view of liberals, We can destroy a country. Now, the United States was once destroyed as a unified country during the Civil War. And that really was over an issue that there wasn't partial truths on. 
slavery was wrong. But nonetheless, it would be, but it was, a, but it was tragic. And part of the reason for the tragedy that was intensified was when Lincoln was assassinated, forces of hatred caused him to be assassinated, and yet he was willing to reach out in ways that could have been good both for the whites in the South and for the blacks in the South. You know, when you lose the voices of, of moderation, and, uh, and part of the problem I think that also feeds that is that in the world of religion, the word compromise has a negative connotation because there's a feeling that you're compromising with truth. But in the world of politics, if all I knew about a candidate was he's known, he'll never compromise, and that's a terrible thing because if you're trying to run a democratic society and you're trying to rule over a society in which a substantial percentage of the people disagree with you, you can't just take an ideological position that disregards their feelings. So that's why I'm saying we've got to search out what are partial truths on the other side. You know, we're not born civilized. Civilized behavior is something that needs to be nurtured. And I find that Shabbat is an opportunity for me to nurture civilized behavior. You spoke earlier about we feel that the stakes are so high. And that's what divides us and that creates these you know, s divisive arguments and rejections of people mm -hmm. out of your lives. I'll just give you the example of a Shabbat table where I know friends of mine who will be really meticulous about all the rituals from lighting the Shabbat candles to Nichilat Shadaim and the Kiddush, and then after that, a food fight breaks out over Trump or Obama. Right. Uh, and I'm thinking, what are the stakes tonight? Are the stakes me being right, or are the stakes having a wonderful, spiritual, uplifting experience where I can recharge my batteries and reconnect on a human level with my friends and family? What are the stakes? And I, and I find that Shabbat is a really instructive experience in, in this thing because we have let it be contaminated by this weekly energy of I'm right and you're wrong. And in a certain sense, I think somebody should write a column one day on how conversation needs to be given the same reverence as the ritual of Nichilat Chadaim or doing Kiddush, especially at a Shabbat table. Uh, and I, I've seen it time and time again when Shabbat tables have been destroyed because people internalize their ideology and the sense that I'm right and you're wrong is more important than the experience that we're having tonight. So one of the, my wife, Devorah, one of the things she insists on at Shabbat and as a general rule, when we don't follow her insistence, it's, we suffer as a result. The Shabbat table, you're right, often can get dominated either by political arguments or, you know, by sort of chatter about some movie that somebody saw and other things. But uh, it doesn't really get us to our depth. And yet if we suddenly take out Torah uh, text, and even if we have people at the table who are not people who normally would study Torah, nonetheless, it starts provoking questions in them. And there's a feeling at the end of the evening, we've done something holy. And if we sing some songs, certainly it has a unifying element. So you're right. If we're supposed to act one way six days a week and on the seventh day, we want to make a difference. This is one of those things that can make a difference. What I found, it took me years to uh, learn this. My, the favorite thing I like to do on Shabbat when we have a lot of guests is get people to tell stories 
what they feel passionate about, what they're working on, what's animating their lives at the moment. And uh, we've gotten the most wonderful stories. I put on my journalistic hat, and we've had Holocaust survivors that have told us amazing stories. And we've had a woman who did a summer camp for women only, and we had somebody who had a, a restaurant for the blind and what have you, and all kinds of fascinating stories from doctors and musicians and so forth. That, yeah. That's been, I wish I would have figured it out years ago, but that is sort of my go-to move on Friday Night Shabbat is to get people to uh, tell stories. I often, you know, say if, if we all became a little more journalist, when I put on my journalistic hat, I'm not as judgmental. Right. You know, if I go into a synagogue that really annoys me, if uh, I don't like the davening, I put on my journalistic hat, and all of a sudden, instead of thinking, do I like or not like, I'm thinking, well, what is this synagogue about? I'm, like, curious to learn more, and I do feel that Shabbat is the opportunity for us to exercise those more interesting, moderating character traits that don't come that naturally during the week. Yeah, it's excellent. Uh, and that works particularly if you have a lot of different guests coming constantly. If your Shabbat table tends to be more comprised of people who generally already know each other, we do a different thing. Everybody, we go around the table and everybody says something that happened that week for which they're happy, some good thing that happened that week. And I do it when I conduct synagogue services. Tell me something good that happened that week. And it forces people to think in those, you know, to think in those terms. It also has another effect which not, might not necessarily be the motivating force for why you do it or for why I do it is, but it makes sure that the table remains one in which all people get involved. Because otherwise there could be, you know, one more prominent person at the table and before you know it, all questions are being directed to that person. That person, whether he or she wants it to happen or not, you know, suddenly is talking too much and other people are left out. And one of the things you want at the end of the Shabbat meal when people leave is that they felt that they were heard which ties in with what you said earlier about learning the skill of listening. Everybody wants to be heard. And so doing it either way, where people sharing unusual experiences in their life or sharing something that happened to them that week immediately just shifts the mood. I want to shift, speaking of shifting, to this paradox that I'm sensing happening in American society right now. On the one hand, you have a generation on college campuses that seems to be more and more fragile, where you have a world of microaggressions, where the most innocuous word can be taken as an offense, and people can be accused of racism mm -hmm. or bigotry for the smallest, um, smallest expression. And then on the other hand, you have this situation that we're seeing, especially in the Jewish community, of real offensive language that's used to dismiss people that you disagree with. Um, so you're writing a book now where, in a way, I see you as trying to redeem words because words have been polluted. We've been polluted by the social media revolution where we're texting and um, instead of going deep, everything becomes shortened. So I see your new book as a way of redeeming words. And you're... On the one hand, you have a, a, a fragile generation of microaggressions which cannot handle anything that they disagree with, mm -hmm. and they've 
they've developed this new right in the American Bill of Rights, the right to not be offended. I have the right to not hear anything I disagree with. Right. Right. And then on the other hand, we're talking about this uh, way of talking in the Jewish community that really offends, which is get out of my life because, you know, we disagree. I mean, maybe there's an overlap and it's the same phenomenon, but how is this going to play a role in the book you're working on now? Well, what I'm doing is I'm revising a book I wrote uh, in the 90s, uh, which I feel is more needed now even than it was then. I felt it was needed then uh, on, as I put it, words that hurt, words that heal. At the time I wrote the book, I tried to actually get a congressional resolution passed. Uh, two, two senators, Joe Lieberman was the Democrat, Connie Mack from Florida was the Republican, introduced a resolution to establish a national Speak No Evil Day. And the goal of the day would be a day on which people would really refrain from saying hurtful things to others and about others. Lashon Hara is how we talk about others, and it's a term fairly widely known in the Jewish community. Most people are not aware that Lashon Hara is by definition true. Gossip is can be true, it could be not true. Lashon Hara is true items, but they're nobody else's business. I mean, worse than that is Motsi Shemra, you know, libeling somebody. And But just as much hurt comes from what's called onatavarim, which is a term that people really don't know by and large, which means oppressing with words by how we speak to others, the way we express anger, uh, the dismissive way you make up nicknames, uh, unkind nicknames for people, uh, you humiliate people. And these are all very, very serious offenses. So I'd like people to experience what it would be like to do, to do two things. Number one, for 24 hours to monitor their own language and not try and change their way of speaking at all and see how often they say not nice things about other people and not nice things to people. Uh, and just mark it down and be conscious of it. And then to try and go for 24 hours without doing it. The way in which the book, though, will be somewhat different than it was when I wrote it 20 years ago is the second half of the book, Words That Heal, was very small 20 years ago. I got married late in life. I had children late in life. So I think I got more sensitive to the healing power of words, uh, you know, later in life. And that's what I want to focus on very much. I'll just give you two instances of it, which are wonderful instances of it, because I know we're coming a little towards, towards the end. So I want to give you a few instances. I read a book some uh, years ago by a woman, a Dr. Uh, Rachel Naomi Remen, called My Grandfather's Blessings. Remen grew up in a household where her parents were both successful professionals. She said it was the sort of house where when she came home with a 98 on a test, her dad would say what happened to the other two points. And she said, I spent a good part of my life pursuing those two points. The one place she didn't feel judged like that was at her grandfather's house. She had a grandfather. Her parental house was quite secular. Her grandfather was a religious Jew. She used to go there Friday afternoon. She would hang out with her grandfather and he would light Shabbat candles, and then he would bless her. And of course, the traditional blessing is you say to girls, may God make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, and to the boys like Ephraim and Menashe. Her grandfather, though, in addition to giving her the standard blessing, would add on something that week that she had done that she could be proud of. If she had not done on a test, well on a test, she had tried hard when she was very young that she was able to sleep in a room without having to have the lights on. And she said every week she would wait to hear something good about herself. And then the great sadness of her life was her grandfather died when she was really only seven. And she said at first she was in a panic. 
But then she said she came to realize that she had learned to see herself through her grandfather's eyes and that once someone is blessed, they're blessed forever. Many years later, to Remen's great surprise, her father, her, her mother in her old age started lighting Shabbat candles. So one Friday night, she was sitting with her mother, and she told her mother the story of the grandfather's blessings and how much they had meant to her. And her mother looked at her sadly and said, Rachel, I want you to know I blessed you every day of your life. Only unlike your grandfather, I didn't have the wisdom to say the blessings out loud. Hmm. So there are people who suffer from what I virtually say is like an emotional constipation. Mm. They don't express those words, which they can express. And there's a second story I came across uh, in the course of reading on it about Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz, as any of as all of us know, is not a particularly shy person, and one would not have thought he was ever one who had problems with his self-image. Dershowitz begins one chapter by saying, I was 15 years old before anybody ever told me I was bright. And he said he grew up, he was a bad student. He never even assumed he was going to go to college. His father sold pants. He assumed he'd sell pants. He said, why do I need to know history or geography or higher math to sell pants? Then one summer when he was a junior in high school, he was working at a Jew. He came from an Orthodox family. I was working at a uh, Jewish summer camp as a waiter, and there was a drama counselor there, a guy in his early 20s, and I used to speak to him. And we'd speak about everything. You know, we'd speak about world events. We'd speak about Jewish thought. We'd speak about girls. And he said, one day he said to me, Alan, you know, Alan, you're really smart. Alan, you're really smart. And those, however it was, it was five words, I remember. He said, those five words, he said, it was the first time anybody ever told me I was smart. And he said, I started to think about how would my life change if I acted like I was smart? And he claims that those five words changed his whole life. The drama counselor, interestingly, was Yitz Greenberg. Hmm. And he, he, he has repeatedly, I asked him about it because I've done interviews with Dershowitz. He said those words turned him around. So we can, in a matter, can I just tell one third story of it? We can, in a matter of words, have an enormous healing impact on people. The third story is from that comic songwriter, Alan Sherman, you know, famous, Hello, Mother, Hello, Father. He remembered an incident once when he was a kid. He was probably eight years old, and he loved his grandmother very much. He had a hard relationship with his own parents. He loved his grandmother, and he was at his grandmother's house with his mother, and his grandmother was making a party that night, and he heard her say that she needed a football. Now, he had no idea why his grandmother needed a football, but he could do it. So he went out, he and he traded. He came across some bully who punched him, but then was willing to give him a football for all his uh, his favorite toys. So he gets the football, he polishes it and leaves it in the house. And then his mother comes home and sees the football and starts yelling at him for leaving his toys around. And she said, what did you bring this football here for? And he said, because grandma needs it for the party. So his mother started laughing at him and said, don't you understand your grandma? His grandmother was obviously a Yiddish speaker. She had said fruit bowl. So he had heard it as football. He said, don't you understand your own grandmother? So he was so humiliated, he sort of cried and ran up into his room and he slammed the door and he didn't want to come down to the party. Later on, his mother comes up and says, you have to come down to the party. You have no idea what your grandmother did. And his grandmother was walking around offering fruit from this gigantic, beautiful fruit bowl. And in the middle was his football. And when people said to him, said to his grandmother, why do you have a football there? She explained what had happened. And then she said, from a child is beautiful anything. Mm. And 
so the capacity of words to heal, I've become so addicted to understanding the importance of it because there isn't enough healing. There isn't enough gratitude, and gratitude is the prerequisite trait for being a happy person. What's the mindset of a grateful person? Look what so-and-so did for me, really cares for me. Look how she spoke about me. She really likes me. At the very moment you cultivate gratitude, you cultivate a feeling of being loved. Conversely, what's the mindset of an ungrateful person? Yeah, I know he helped me. Now he expects me to do that for him. Yeah, she spoke to her on my behalf. Now I'm going to have to do that for her. What an ungrateful person reveals is not only a stingy disposition, but how unloved they feel. They live in a world where nobody does anything out of love. Cynicism is actually stupid. There are really many, very many good people. So I want to get across this notion of the importance of the capacity of words to really hurt and wound and the capacity of words to heal. They really can go. With words, we can do the worst things, and with words, we can do the greatest things. And the great thing is, it's all within the power of our mouth. Well, you arouse my curiosity mm-hmm. when you talk about this congressional resolution that never passed. Right. You know, having a national, you know, day where we speak no evil. So I'm wondering if we can honor this moment we've had this morning, and can you envision announcing in the Jewish community, maybe around Rosh Hashanah, that we can do a cover story in the Jewish Journal and build up and announce a day of Lishon Tov? Like I wanted, I'll tell you what I want to do. This is my goal. I learned an important lesson. When I did the bill in, 90, uh, in 95, I think I brought it uh, to Joe Lieberman and Connie Mack, I only subsequently learned that to really get a bill like that passed, you need to get 50 senatorial co-sponsors. And that's exactly what I want to try and do in the book. I want to start it again. I want this also to be a Jewish contribution to America. Jews as individuals have made amazing contributions to America. But this is an idea that comes out of Judaism, this whole notion about Lashon Hara. And you're right. There should be a notion of Lashon Tov, but it's not normally spoken. This really comes out of our tradition. I want this to be a Jewish contribution that we make to America. And needed now more than ever. Yes. So, But like, like I said, it's quite possible that I might come out of this interview and think of a campaign where we can start maybe year one is only in the Jewish community and year two is for all of America, but I want you and I to continue this conversation we because I see the potential for this. Thank you very much, Joseph. Oh, this was fantastic. Yeah. David, I love it. Shabbat shalom. And I love you. <laughs> Bye. Likewise. <laughs>